Welcome to Learning English on the Voice of America. I'm Katie Weaver. Our program is designed for people learning English. We speak slowly using simple grammar and a limited vocabulary. Today on the show, we hear reports from Alice Bryant and Mario Ritter. Later, Jill Robbins brings us Ask a Teacher. And we close the show with part two of the American story, Paul's Case, by Willa Cather. Here is Alice Bryant. A violent event of a massive size may have led to the birth of our solar system, scientists say. That event was the crashing of two galaxies. The coming together of our galaxy and a smaller one caused countless stars to form in the Milky Way more than 4.5 billion years ago, scientists reported last week. The smaller galaxy is called Sagittarius. It is 10,000 times smaller than the Milky Way. A crash between galaxies usually does not involve stars hitting each other, the scientists noted, but it can create conditions for star formation. For example, it can increase the amount of gas in a galaxy or cause gas clouds to come together. The Reuters news agency says the two galaxies first crashed more than six billion years ago. Since then, Sagittarius has passed through the Milky Way and its nearly 100 billion stars two more times. The scientists link all three events to a sharp jump in Milky Way star formation. Scientific data show a long period of star formation from 6.2 billion to 4.2 billion years ago, linked to the first crash. That data comes from the European Space Agency's Gaia Space Observatory. Scientists believe Two other star formation surges linked to the colliding galaxies took place 1.9 billion years ago and 1 billion years ago. Each one lasted a few hundred million years. Tomas Ruiz Lara is an astronomer at the Instituto de Astrofisica de Canarias in Spain. He was the lead writer of a report on the research. He says galaxy crashes are not like car crashes. Some parts of Sagittarius and the Milky Way intersect, but a crash between stars would be really, really rare, he said. The crash changed our galaxy's speed of star formation. Ruiz Lara explained, First, we have the addition of material 
gas from Sagittarius that increases the amount of gas in our galaxy to form new stars, he said. Second, there is the collision between gas clouds from Sagittarius and gas clouds from the Milky Way, which also led to star formation. Third, the crash causes gravitational instabilities that can lead to star formation, he said. This happens because of changes in the density of the gaseous matter in the usually low-density space between star systems. The report on galactic interactions appears in the publication Natural Astronomy. I'm Alice Bryant. In the United States, the funny papers will have more than laughs this Sunday. More than 70 comic strips will each have six objects hidden in the artwork when they appear in newspapers this weekend. These symbols were added to recognize workers in the battle against COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus. Look closely at the comics, and you will find a face mask for medical workers and caregivers. There is a steering wheel for workers who transport masks and other personal protective equipment as well as an apple for teachers. Readers will also find a shopping cart in honor of supermarket workers, a fork for food service crews, and a microscope for medical researchers. In the Sherman's Lagoon comic strip, the six objects are hidden in ocean waters. In Blondie, they appear on the computer of Dagwood Bumstead, Blondie's husband. In Zitz, they are hidden in Jeremy Duncan's bedroom. The effort to honor health care and other frontline workers was the idea of Rick Kirkman, a co-cartoonist of the Baby Blues comic strip. Kirkman said he wanted to show his thanks to the frontline helpers. He contacted other cartoonists who helped shape the idea, and it just kept growing. This Sunday would have marked the last day of the National Cartoonists Society's yearly meeting which was cancelled. I just felt like that was a great day to do it, because we're missing that big communal feeling, but at least we can get to do something together, Kirkman said. All the participating comics, including additional art, 
will appear on two websites, comicskingdom.com and gocomics.com. All the cartoonists provide links to local or national aid groups in their social media feeds. Jason Chatfield produces the Ginger Megs strip and is president of the National Cartoonist Society. He said that while cartoonists have worked together before for causes, nothing of this size has been attempted. There's nothing quite like sitting down and seeing all the comics together on one page and on a really special day where we've all coordinated to do something very special for a really good cause, he said. Because comic strips are often finished weeks before publication, many of the cartoonists had to go back into already approved works to add the symbols or create a new strip. Kirkman left it up to the artists how to hide the six symbols. For some cartoonists, the work was relatively easy. For others, it required a little more work. After all, how exactly was Prince Valiant, set in the fifth century, supposed to add a microscope, which was not invented, until the late sixteenth century. One cartoonist, Wiley Miller, had to work especially hard since his non-sequitur strip takes place thousands of years ago. I told him, well, you know, you just hide stuff in there, Kirkman said, and the next day he came back and he said, I did it. Chatfield said some of his fellow artists came up with stylized versions of the objects, like half-eaten apples or an apple pie. Something that cartoonists love is a creative challenge, he said. While many cartoonists hope to keep their work escapist, and so have avoided dealing directly with the coronavirus, Kirkman and Chatfield have added information about the health crisis into their daily strips. Kirkman and Baby Blue's co-creator, Jerry Scott, had some characters wear face masks when coming from outside, and Chatfield's sports-loving hero, is now being schooled at home. The cartoonists are looking forward to Sunday. I'm going to be as pleasantly surprised, I think, as everybody else to see all of this, said Kirkman. I'm Mario Ritter, Jr. This week we received a question from Candy in China.
Candy writes, I wonder what is the difference between not and no. Today, when I do my homework, I encounter the question. I do not know if it is no need to do something or not need to do something. Candy, China. Dear Candy, thank you for writing to us. We do not usually answer homework questions, but I will try to explain the difference between the two expressions. The word not is an adverb, which means it modifies or changes the meaning of a verb. Not is often used with modal verbs like should, can, and might. Here are two examples. You should not go to the park today. We might not have time to go before dark. The phrase you saw, not need to do something, looks like it is part of a sentence where need is used as a verb. Here are some examples. You do not need to clean the room. I have not walked the dog today. They are not working on the project. In those sentences, not modifies the verbs clean, walk, and work. They show how not can be used as an adverb. The word no can be used as an adverb, adjective, or noun. In your sentence, there is no need to do something. No is used as an adjective, modifying the noun need. The verb in that sentence is a form of the word be, is. Here are examples of no being used as an adjective. The store has no eggs on the shelf. People with no internet connection at home can go to a library. No is also often used as an adverb. For example, your parents may have told you, No, you cannot have any more candy. In that sentence, no answers the question, Can I have more candy? I am wondering if that is where you got your nickname, Candy. By the way, I hope you have no problems with doing your homework now. What question do you have about American English? Send us an email at learningenglish at voanews.com. And that's Ask a Teacher for this week. I'm Jill Robbins. Are you at risk of getting seriously ill from the new coronavirus? Here are some things to keep in mind. 80% of coronavirus cases are mild. Young and healthy people are at low risk. Other people and those with serious health conditions have a greater risk of serious illness or even death. If you have a cough, fever, and difficulty breathing, Contact a doctor and stay away from other people. For more information, visit the World Health Organization website at www.who.int or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at www.cdc.gov. Today, we complete the story, Paul's Case. 
It was written by Willa Cather. Here is Kay Gallant with the story. Paul was a student with a lot of problems. He hated school. He didn't like living with his family on Cordelia Street in the industrial city of Pittsburgh. Paul wanted to be surrounded by beautiful things. He loved his part-time job as an usher at the concert hall. He helped people find their seats before the concert. Then he could listen to the music and dream of exciting places. Paul also spent a lot of time at the local theater. He knew many of the actors who worked there. He used to do little jobs for them, and they would let him see plays for free. Paul had little time left for his studies, so he was always in trouble with his teachers. Finally, Paul's teachers complained again to his father. His father took him out of school and made him take a job in a large company. He would not let Paul go near the concert hall or the theater. Paul did not like his job as a messenger boy. He began to plan his escape. A few weeks later, Paul's boss, Mr. Denny, gave Paul a large amount of money to take to the bank. He told Paul to hurry because it was Friday afternoon. He said the bank would close soon and would not open again until Monday. At the bank, Paul took the money out of his pocket. It was $5,000. Paul put the money back in his coat pocket and he walked out of the bank. He went to the train station and bought a one-way ticket for New York City. That afternoon, Paul left Pittsburgh forever. The train traveled slowly through a January snowstorm. The slow movement made Paul fall asleep. The train whistle blew just as the sun was coming up. Paul awoke, feeling dirty and uncomfortable. He quickly touched his coat pocket. The money was still there. It was not a dream. He really was on his way to New York City with $5,000 in his pocket. Finally, the train pulled into Central Station. Paul walked quickly out of the station and went immediately to an expensive clothing store for men. The salesman was very polite when he saw Paul's money. Paul bought two suits, several white silk shirts, some silk ties of different colors. Then he bought a black tuxedo suit for the theater, a warm winter coat, a red bathrobe, and the finest silk underclothes. He told the salesman he wanted to wear one of the new suits and the coat immediately. The salesman bowed 
and smiled. Paul then took a taxi to another shop where he bought several pairs of leather shoes and boots. Next, he went to the famous jewelry store Tiffany's and bought a tie pin and some brushes with silver handles. His last stop was a luggage store where he had all his new clothes put into several expensive suitcases. It was a little before one o'clock in the afternoon when Paul arrived at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The doorman opened the hotel's glass doors for Paul, and the boy entered. The thick carpet under his feet had the colors of a thousand jewels. The lights sparkled from crystal chandeliers. Paul told the hotel clerk he was from Washington, D.C. He said his mother and father were arriving in a few days from Europe. He explained he was going to wait for them at the hotel. In his dreams, Paul had planned this trip to New York a hundred times. He knew all about the Waldorf Astoria, one of New York's most expensive hotels. As soon as he entered his rooms, he saw that everything was perfect, except for one thing. He rang the bell and asked for fresh flowers to be sent quickly to his rooms. When the flowers came, Paul put them in water, and then he took a long, hot bath. He came out of the bathroom wearing the red silk bathrobe. Outside his windows, the snow was falling so fast that he could not see across the street. But inside, the air was warm and sweet. He lay down on the sofa in his sitting room. It had all been so very simple, he thought. When they had shut him out of the theater and the concert hall, Paul knew he had to leave. But he was surprised that he had not been afraid to go. He could not remember a time when he had not been afraid of something, even when he was a little boy. But now he felt free. He wasn't afraid anymore. He watched the snow until he fell asleep. It was four o'clock in the afternoon when Paul woke up. He spent nearly an hour getting dressed. He looked at himself often in the mirror. His dark blue suit fit him so well that he did not seem too thin. The white silk shirt and the blue and lilac tie felt cool and smooth under his fingers. He was exactly the kind of boy he had always wanted to be. Paul put on his new winter coat and went downstairs. He got into a taxi and told the driver to take him for a ride along Fifth Avenue. Paul stared at the expensive stores. As the taxi stopped for a red light, Paul noticed a flower shop 
Through the window, he could see all kinds of flowers. Paul thought the violets, roses, and lilies of the valley looked even more lovely because they were blooming in the middle of winter. Paul began to feel hungry, so he asked the taxi driver to take him back to the hotel. As he entered the dining room, the music of the hotel orchestra floated up to greet him. He sat at a table near a window. The fresh flowers, the white tablecloth, and the colored wine glasses pleased Paul's eyes. The soft music, the low voices of the people around him, and the soft popping of champagne corks whispered into Paul's ears. This is what everyone wants, he thought. He could not believe he had ever lived in Pittsburgh on Cordelia Street. That belonged to another time and place. Paul lifted the crystal glass of champagne and drank the cold, precious, bubbling wine. He belonged here. Later that evening, Paul put on his black tuxedo and went to the opera. He felt perfectly at ease. He had only to look at his tuxedo to know he belonged with all the other beautiful people in the opera house. He didn't talk to anyone, but his eyes recorded everything. Paul's golden days went by without a shadow. He made each one as perfect as he could. On the eighth day after his arrival in New York, he found a report in the newspaper about his crime. It said that his father had paid the company the $5,000 that Paul had stolen. It said Paul had been seen in a New York hotel. And it said Paul's father was in New York. He was looking for Paul to bring him back to Pittsburgh. Paul's knees became weak. He sat down in a chair and put his head in his hands. The dream was ended. He had to go back to Cordelia Street, back to the yellow-papered bedroom, the smell of cooked cabbage, the daily ride to work on the crowded streetcars. Paul poured himself a glass of champagne and drank it quickly. He poured another glass and drank that one, too. Paul had a taxi take him out of the city and into the country. The taxi left him near some railroad tracks. Paul suddenly remembered all the flowers he had seen in a shop window his first night in New York. He realized that by now, every one of those flowers was dead. They had had only one splendid moment to challenge winter. A train whistle broke into Paul's thoughts. He watched as the train grew bigger and bigger. As it came closer, Paul's 
body shook. His lips wore a frightened smile. Paul looked nervously around as if someone might be watching him. When the right moment came, Paul jumped. And as he jumped, he realized his great mistake. The blue of the ocean and the yellow of the desert flashed through his brain. He had not seen them yet. There was so much he had not seen. Paul felt something hit his chest. He felt his body fly through the air far and fast. Then everything turned black, and Paul dropped back into the great design of things. You have just heard the American story, Paul's Case. It was written by Willa Cather. Your storyteller was Kay Gallant. show. But we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place, with another Learning English program on The Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Katie Weaver. <laughs>